Hello and welcome to Dior Common Thread. In this series, we'll explore the constellation of creatives around Kim Jones, Dior Men's Artistic Director, who has masterminded some of the most dynamic and exciting collaborations in fashion. I am Ed Tang, co-founder of Art Bureau, a New York and Hong Kong-based art advisory, and now your host. In each episode of this show, I'll be bringing you conversations with some of the people who have collaborated with Kim at Dior. From art and fashion to nature and technology, we'll discuss their influences, creative process, and everything else. So far in this series, we've been hearing from different experts in their fields. Today's guest is no exception. Sammy J works at the rare bookseller Peter Harrington in London, whose shops are like Aladdin's cave. They're filled with treasures and tens of thousands of volumes of books, printed matter, and works on paper. As Kim Jones's book dealer of choice, Sammy J has helped source rare books, manuscripts, and ephemera for him, and has even collaborated on projects at Dior. Today, we will discuss the excitement of book dealing with Sammy, what that involves, and how it can be a portal into different and surprising worlds. It's great to have you today, Sammy. Um, Thank you. Let's talk books. Okay. <laughs> for me, books are magical. They've always been. I love reading them, but I also love them as physical objects. But as our world becomes more digitally driven, do you think people who like to flip pages of a book might become things of the past? Well, it's that's the uh, million-dollar question uh, in my in my industry. Um, my perspective on it has been no. Um, interestingly enough, it's more popular and more interesting than ever um, to an increasingly widening group of people as well. Um, there used to be the perspective that uh, you know the, the the rare book collector was a a sort of you know a stereotypical uh, usually tweed wearing old usually male uh, <laughs> probably white uh, person and now it's become more diverse but now it has become considerably more diverse considerably younger and uh, there's been you know when i started i was the youngest person in the company i work at um and and certainly was a kind of you know looked on as is incredibly junior when i would go to book fairs and other things but now there's a tens of people younger than me who have come into the business over the last 10 years and and many young collectors um i was just talking uh, earlier this morning with a with a young girl who's 20 years old and still an undergraduate who's building a fantastic collection of between the wars poetry and i just you know it's fantastic to me you know as someone in the book trade is there a difference in your mind between someone buying a book to read or someone buying a book to collect on the whole i think the book to read and the book to collect perform two different functions but they're related and they're connected by 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 appreciation um and generally speaking most people are unlikely to be collecting a book that they haven't read if you see what i mean so it's more a way of representing representing that passion and and what the book means to you in your life in your biography in your mind uh you know where it's taken you what it reminds you of um and then having that um on your shelf and in your life is is is, is you know is, is a really valuable thing I read in the Financial Times recently that in 2021, UK book sales reached their highest point mm. in a decade, with 212 million print copies sold despite the closure of stores, of course, during COVID lockdowns. Are you surprised by this? And do you think those numbers would continue to go up 
as the world opens up or do you think people will move well, on? That's a good question. Uh, certainly, I think in these times, um, expect it, trying to predict anything about the future is uh, <laughs> it's not so easy. Um, <laughs> but certainly last year uh, and over the years of the pandemic, book sales in the in the normal sense of the word of you know not rare books were so robust and healthy because it was certainly been the case in in the rare book and the collecting world um everyone was bracing for a, for a real uh, dip and in fact uh, we found collectors who were um at home uh, with their books and able to have a little bit of potentially time to reflect on what they cared about on and on the, on their books and all of that is yeah, really kind of brings people back to their to their book collections. So we we actually were dealing. Well, the joys of reading. Yeah, and the joys of reading exactly. So we were dealing. We 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 had a huge amount of uh, of, of of people building and expanding on their on their collections over the last two years, which was great. Whether that carries on or not, um, I expect it will. It'll just be in a different way. I mean, if we hadn't had the internet, um, Lord knows uh, what it would have been like. Because of course, that was the necessary marketplace for all of this business. Um, as, a, as of course it was for, for, for new booksellers. I mean, you mentioned the beginning of your career mm-hmm. very briefly just now. Sure. How did you get into the world of books uh, as a career path? Well, it, it's a story I've, uh, I enjoy telling. Um, I, um, <laughs> there are certain necessary prerequisites to this that I love books, that I studied literature at university uh, and, and, and didn't want to leave it behind. Um, but all of those things are common to many people. I was knocking around um, after university, not really knowing what to do with myself. And I was looking through my grandfather's bookshelves after he died, as uh, you know, because sometimes uh, the books that people leave behind, they can tell you something about them that maybe you didn't know. So can be very telling. I always look at what people read on the train or on airport yes, terminals. Exactly. That's just me being nosy, I suppose. But, sorry <laughs> to interrupt. Not at all. Not at all. I, I, it was interesting to me because he was he was actually an economist, uh, and and I'm I'm not I do not have a mathematical or a economic or scientific mind particularly. Um, but I was fascinated to discover he, his shelves were full of poetry um, <laughs> and uh, romantic poetry and things. And what I discovered, he really really liked Byron and Shelley and, and all all of the romantics. And so I was looking through the shelves, and I I see there's one book that's on the top shelf, uh, hasn't been disturbed for, for decades. Um, I, I'm, I'm quite tall, so maybe I was the, the first person who could reach it. And I, I pulled it down and opened <laughs> it up and it absolutely changed my life. It was the, it was the first edition of Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Um, and that in itself is, is a rare um, and, and valuable book, although I didn't know that at the time, but I appreciated what it was. Uh, but then I turned a page and there was uh, an inscription saying, to Lord Byron from the author. You've hit the jackpot, so to speak. Yes, exactly. <laughs> as well as, you know, whatever turned out to be its financial, uh, you know, value, which was considerable and its rarity, it was just uh, what that meant as a cultural item, you know, was was just so thrilling, particularly for me, because I'd always been a big fan of, you know, the romantics and Shelley, and I knew all about the story of where, uh, you know, how Frankenstein came to be, you know, which was that Mary Shelley and Byron were uh, in in Lake Geneva on a, on, a, on a kind of cold summer evening, and uh, Byron said, why don't we tell some ghost stories? Um, and then, and then two years later, the book is published, and she inscribes this copy to him. And it was it was a real amazing thing to discover. Well, that's a wonderful story. Those are the types of stories one might read in in a newspaper. But you know, just like you saw in your grandfather, you stumbled across this rare, incredible um, mm. thing in your grandfather's possession. I think with books, there there truly is a mm. sense of discovery. 
books themselves, obviously there's a fascination in the actual object, but they are also a metaphor and a touchstone and a connection to so much. The love of books isn't just the love of the the, 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 content. You know, the paper and the binding. It's also it's also a love of everything they mean, which is you know books are a kind of um, map of the world and a few human life and everything. So um, that's the thing that I, I I find thrilling about it. Let's talk about Kim Jones because. For as long as I've known him, his love of books has been profound. Yes, yes. You've helped him assemble a staggering personal library. How did that relationship, both professional and personal, come about? Well, Kim, yes, indeed, it, his, his love of books is profound. His collection is staggering. And it has been amazing to work with him. Uh, really opened up some fascinating uh, avenues and experiences. Um, but he, we, he, he first came into the shop um, about two, a little over two years ago. He knew what he wanted. Uh, that, <laughs> that was the thing that was very, very apparent at first. He, he had heard that we had a very, very special Virginia Woolf book, which is a copy of Jacob's Room um, uh, inscribed to Vanessa Bell. Um, and uh, you know, as, I, as I later learned about the things that Kim cares about, that is the kind of uh, absolute nexus of, 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 of his particular pas- passion. And he's very, very... He was trophy hunting. Yeah, he was trophy hunting for sure. Um, but he was the right hunter for that, for that thing and the right custodian for, to really, really appreciate it. It's been a great pleasure for me because, you know, as a book dealer, you have your own passions, you have your own interests, but you also are responsive to the, your customers and, and what they're looking for. And you learn amazing things and discover stuff because of their passions. So, you know, his, his Virginia Woolf collection, um, uh, the Bloomsbury thing is something that I knew about, but I've, I know a lot more about it now. <laughs> and that's been great. A lot of those books that you've sourced for him have in turn inspired collections at Dior. For instance, last December in London, the Dior Men's Fall 2022 collection was inspired by the beat poet Jack Kerouac. For the show, you co-curated a special exhibition of books and manuscripts entitled Nowhere to Go But Everywhere, which was largely drawn from Kim's personal collection. This is probably not what most people have in mind, when you tell them you're a rare book dealer. Tell us more about that. <laughs> well, yeah, you, you're absolutely right about that. It, it certainly, uh, as I was standing in the middle of this exhibition that I'd you know, worked for two months to, to build and, 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 and with this extraordinary team of everyone from Dior and um, all, 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 the, all the action and uh, things swirling around me, I was certainly thinking, you know, this is not what I uh, signed up for. Uh, <laughs> I was just um, absolutely um, you know, amazed to be there because of books and because of the fascination with books. And that's a wonderful thing that Kim has, has done, um, I think, is take uh, my world and, and, and kind of throw it into that particular limelight um, for, for at least for a while. Yes, that was amazing. Yeah, I mean, the, even the collection itself was a great reflection of, of the spirit of the beat movement. Yeah, um, thank you. You know, the way models walk down the runway that Hmm. resembled a blown-up copy of the On the Road manuscript was very memorable. Hmm. The clothing and accessories were a nod to the famously bohemian generation. I also loved how the exhibition included ephemera like a check signed by Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg's old credit card. What was the highlight of that entire collaboration for you? It was building a story about 
not just the core items that you would expect to see in a, in a, in a you know, beat generation collection. I built it around the core figures, but what really was wonderful was the opportunity using Kim's incredibly capacious and flexible uh, and deep collection um, was to kind of really show the connections internally, but also externally in the beat culture and how uh, important they were and how influential it was, and also what influenced it. So you'd have these um, books inscribed to people that would then connect to, you know, who's that book inscribed to? And one of their books inscribed to someone else. And it kind of rang out in this sort of network of connections and, and inspiration. And so the two things that I really, really loved in the collection that kind of related to that was Arthur Rambo, the French you know, decadent poet uh, and symbolist poet from the um, late 19th century, he was a huge iconic figure for the Beat Generation. And, you know, Kerouac and his friend Lucien Carr would kind of swan around uh, New York pretending to be Verlaine and Rambo. They were taking from his poetry um, so much inspiration. Um, and so it was really great to be able to include one amazing book that Kim has, which is a first edition of The Season in Hell from, um, you know, the, the original in French first edition. And, you know, to have touchstones like that, for me, that's what one of the things that's exciting about first editions is, is kind of what they can inspire. And then jumping forward, there was on the other end of the spectrum, you know, the Beat Generation and also Rambo really inspired people like Lou Reed and other rock and rollers and, you know, Jim Morrison. And so we had kind of a fascinating cabinet that I, I really enjoyed putting together with. They had the original manuscript lyrics for the Velvet Underground's first album, some early and rare Jim Morrison poetry books, you know, all of that stuff. And to sort of really show the kind of line of, of inspiration that in this material objects um, was great fun for me. I love how you took, you know, Kim's collection and really injected mm. a new life by organizing the, this exhibition, which I suppose all that effort kind of culminated into one night only extravaganza. It was a one night show. It was absolutely all worth it. And, you know, these things, although it, it the actual exhibition disappeared uh, in a puff of smoke, as it were, it uh, it lasts in conversations like this and, and in in other ways. And of course, Kim still yes. has the books and they're, 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 they're all there at his house. So um, it's certainly it's a new experience for me, that age old um feature of the fashion world, the, the kind of ephemerality uh, of, of these experiences. But there, you know, there's a certain thrill about that too. And I hope that the guests who were able to see it were able to enjoy uh, and appreciate it. Um, I certainly was, yeah. I certainly enjoyed it. Since we're on the topic mm -hmm. of extravaganza, you also collaborated with Kim on the presentation of his debut mm. Fendi Women's Couture Collection in January 2021, which also included an exhibition of books and manuscripts exploring mm. one of his great passions, Virginia Woolf and the Bloomsbury Group. In fact, the title of this podcast, Common Thread, is a cheeky nod to Woolf's ah. book, The Common Reader. Can you tell our listeners more about that collaboration? That was our first collaboration together, and it was really fascinating. But the Bloomsbury Group, I think it's meaningful and pertinent that Kim chose to arrange and organize his his first Fendi Couture show around the Bloomsbury Group because he takes so much inspiration. And I think also a personal connection from Virginia Woolf, from Vanessa Bell, um, uh, Charleston House, where he grew up. 
and I think they, uh, you know, they also lived in this kind of fascinatingly bohemian way that I think really appeals <laughs> appeals to him. And there's the crossover of literature, arts, and crafts, and mm, and all of that. Yes. What was that famous quote um, about the Bloomsbury Group? You know, a circle of friends who lived in squares and loved in triangles. Yes, people who lived in squares. Painted in circles and loved in triangles. That's ah, what yes. <laughs> well, it is. It was a fascinating yeah. time. But but the impression that I had was, you know, you also made books very sexy. I mean, Demi Moore, <laughs> Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, all sort of holding books and flipping it. It was um, far from the dusty pursuit that you you once described uh, the book trade. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I did that, but Kim said Kim certainly <laughs> did. Kim's collection, what he does with it, is such an extraordinary. Uh, process because of course you know uh, books are basically usually a very rather private way of showing yourself what you care about and I think it's wonderful uh, and really exciting for me that Kim in his collaborations with the rare book world uh, has um, turned that inside out and used it as an opportunity to kind of show the world what he cares about through his book. Well so far we've heard the glamorous side of things I'm curious to know the day-to-day and what that actually involves um the nitty gritty yeah. part. <laughs> yes. Well, it's funny on how you say the glamorous. I mean, the thing I love actually about the book trade, but it always amuses me, is the extreme range from the glamorous to the uh, rather grimy. But, you know, my day to day, what my work mainly is, is in, the, is in the buying side of it. Although I do have a few collectors who I work directly with, like Kim, and you know we help help, help them um, with what they're doing. But but my my job is uh, you know scouring catalog uh, auctions and and bookseller catalogs, but also um, increasingly now after COVID, uh, getting out on the road on um, the move uh, on the move. Just great fun. It's one of the reasons why I particularly appreciated the on the road uh, uh, exhibition because you know a large portion of my work is basically um, driving around the states. <laughs> looking for treasures. So, As an art advisor, I see a lot of collectors of contemporary art who can be quite obsessed with the pursuit. I'm curious to hear mm. from you how mad some book <laughs> collectors or, or dealers can be. Uh, you don't have to name names, of course. <laughs> well, it, you know, there was a funny book relatively recently put out on Bibliophily called The Gentle Madness. Um, that, was, that was the title, which I think in some ways uh, it, it goes some way to describing um, that characteristic. I think passion is probably a more polite word than madness, but um, sometimes it does spill over. I do I have a funny anecdote. I remember um, once sitting in the shop and a sane looking gentleman uh, walked in <laughs> um, and uh, asked me if I had any books uh, on... Uh, either Richard II, King Richard II, or Abraham Lincoln. And I said, uh, I think we may have a few, but um, you know, these are two rather far apart figures. Uh, what, what, what is it that connects your interest? And he eyes widened and he said, well, I am Abraham Lincoln and Richard II. I am the reincarnated spirit of both of these two people. Uh, uh, and it wasn't a joke. <laughs> No, no. Right. <laughs> he was very sincere. Um, so, you know, I often think about that when people say, you know, why do people collect books? You know, well, the, the, <laughs> there's a whole range of reasons. <laughs> and what did he end up buying? He did actually buy a, 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 a book signed by Abraham Lincoln and took it away very happily. Um, uh, signed by him, him of course. Yes. Previous, <laughs> he uh, could have just signed it himself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we never saw him again. But yes, it was quite, quite a funny experience. In your dream collection of books, what would we find? Uh, the thing that really excites me is what, what we call association copies. So where, where there's an association between the 
uh, book and the owner of that book. So books that have been owned by um, really fascinating people and uh, where there's a kind of connection, the uniqueness of, of what that brings together uh, is really meaningful. So in the past, I've, you know, I've had things that I, you know, wished I could have kept like uh, Dylan Thomas's copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, which he had when he was a teenager. You know, that, that, that poem is all about why in order to feel truly inspired, you have to drink alcohol. Uh, <laughs> and obviously he took that to heart. Um, or, or, uh, you don't say. Or, um, yeah. Or, you know, I've often dreamed about one day maybe Bob Dylan's library comes up and, you know, I, I can get his copy of Rambo. Something that really bespeaks about the power of books to inspire, you know, of, 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 of old books to inspire new creations. And that's what I really like. So it's not um, necessarily when, the content of the book, but it's the provenance, the history of yeah, or the yeah, ownership. Yeah. And what that person owning that book could have meant and could have led to, um, I think is really exciting. There's an enormous amount of scholarship in, in what you do. And I, clearly it sounds like you are a very meticulous person. You must also <laughs> think like an archivist. Um, and you are I'm a, also... I'm a Virgo like Kim. All right. <laughs> that that <laughs> says a lot. <laughs> You're also involved with publishing the Peter Harrington catalogue, covering endless, and I mean endless topics, from astrology to sport to literature and art. I know the newest edition of the catalogue is, in fact, called An Exhaustible Life. I imagine it is quite exhausting because there's just such an abundance <laughs> of topics and history to look into. Those, those print catalogues are a great opportunity to, again, tell a story and an opportunity to, to also think, you know, what are the topics right now? What are the stories we can tell that are, that are going to shed some light on the present or at least uh, be um, uh, eye-opening? So I remember during the, the COVID, uh, during the first lockdown, uh, I found myself doing a, a literature catalogue all about science fiction, which actually I planned to do it from before it started, but it, it turned out to be you really kind of hold the mirror up to the moment because it was because we everything was rather dystopian at the time. There were books like E.M. Forster's The Machine Stops, which is this amazing short story he wrote in 1910, all about a world in which everyone is, uh, you know, there's a sort of ecological apocalypse uh, on, the, on the surface of the earth and everyone is sitting in rooms connected only by uh, an electronic network and talking to each other through screens. And uh, it was just, you know, while we were all sitting around doing Zoom, Quite prophetic. Um, Zoom quizzes. Uh, it, it was, it was uh, it, you know, the, the, those things and, and countless other, um, you know, the, of the visions and prophecies of sci-fi have uh, turned out to be more and more like current events um, <laughs> these days. So, you know, the, that's just an example. But, you know, doing the catalogs like that are kind of a fun opportunity to, to kind of push um, what we have into the current sphere. So books are created to be beautiful objects. Virginia Woolf said she found bookbinding to be exciting, soothing, ennobling, and satisfying. Uh, you yourself have extensive knowledge of leather bindery. Would you say it's a craft art form that has become less fashionable? And, and in what circumstances would you bind a book nowadays? Well, there's a yeah, those are two, those are two good, good questions. And, and I, I'm happy to be reminded of Virginia Woolf's because she was doing binding as therapy originally. Mm. Um, she had a nervous breakdown and then, she, and then she just sort of started binding books at home. Um, and, uh, and then that led to the, you know, the Hogarth Press producing their own books and hand printing. And, you know, so you know, these things can, can lead to, to 
Evolving. Open. Yeah, exactly. We have a book bindery at Peter Harrington called the Chelsea Bindery. And uh, the, what they do um, is, you know, you'll take a first edition, um, usually a first edition, 20th century book certainly, um, is valuable because it's survived in the condition that it's, you know, like the day it was born, you know, so or as close to that as possible. So it's got its original dust jacket, which is usually kind of got some nice, exciting illustration on it. Um, and having that surviving, you know, without being too uh, deteriorated, um, you know, is, is, is kind of the mission of the, the book collector, at least in that type of book. Um, but when the book has lost its dust jacket and the cover is uh, a bit of a mess, but the contents are still nice and clean, it's a first edition and it sort of, you know, it's, it still has a latent value. Um, then, then that's when our bindery will take it and give it a new lease of life and turn it into something else. And often they put some really nice designer bindings on, on, on things and um, that's very exciting. A bespoke facelift, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And they're very popular. You know, it's a different type of thing. The collector who wants the Chelsea Bound first edition of, you know, Out of Africa or whatever is, is going to be a different collector from the one that, that wants the, the, the copy in its rare dust jacket. But, um, but they're both th things of value. So, so you know, we, we wouldn't take a book that has its, you know, jacket and rebind it. You know, that would be sacrilegious. And on the opposite side of the spectrum... What do you feel about ebooks like the Kindle? Is it an over my dead body situation for, for a bibliophile <laughs> like yourself? Well, there, there, it's, a good, it's a good question. I, I, I don't mind personally about the existence of the Kindle. Uh, I think it has its purpose. But I think uh, I, I don't personally do it uh, because it, the thing it misses, at least for me, is the thing I love about books, which is the, the sense of the material survival of the object and parts of yourself and your own life and experience as a reader in that copy you know you put your name in it maybe you underline it a bit it actually you know carries part of you and either that stays on your shelf and, and you keep it or maybe maybe um it goes out into the world the kindles don't outlast won't outlast us you know they'll, they'll just you know have an electronic fault at some point and then <laughs> be thrown away uh whereas books books survive and that's what i that's what i like one of the things i like about books is, is you know you have all these books on the bookshelf here in peter harrington and all of them have been owned by someone a range of people and and they carry part of their spirit which kind of is moving to me thinking about the future of rare book dealership do you ever imagine a world in which you might mint an nft of objects like this well, it's, you know, that's another question a lot of people are talking about. Um, I th yes. I, I, it's not out of the question. Um, but, to, I mean, the point of an NFT, uh, you know, what does it mean? A non-fungible token, the attempt to create uh, in the digital world the conditions that already exist in the physical world to have a unique object. And all the books already are unique objects. Um, <laughs> so um, we don't really need to do that. However, there are cases where, for example, you could create um, an NFT of a manuscript, you know, um, which, you know, many books, for example, are being written on computers. Now, how do you, as it were, buy and sell and kind of, you know, uh, tokenize the um excitement and the ownership of that that thing if it if it exists digitally so there may be a place for nfts in the kind of um, archival world um and the ownership of those things in, in in that sense for sure i would say fascinating as we wrap up our conversation today i have just a few remaining questions for you 
The first book I read in English, cover to cover, was James and the Giant Peach by Roald Dahl, which ignited my love of books and of reading. What was the first book you read and what was the last? Mr. Harrington would be very pleased uh, that you're a fan of uh, Roald Dahl. He's, he, that's what he collects. That's what he collects. He Absolutely. Collects um, however, for me... Mine was not a first edition. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> the first book I remember reading that really kind of set my mind on fire and um, made me think, wow, I'm doing something important here. But, you know, that, that really means something by reading this, this book and it's really changing, changing me was actually Ursula Le Guin's The Wizard of Earthsea. She's a, she's a great uh, science fiction fantasy writer in the kind of mid, mid-century. And I remember reading that. Um, and uh, oddly enough, um, the last book I read was also by Ursula Le Guin. Um, <laughs> uh, Goes back in full circle. It, exactly. I just, um, uh, I've returned to her um, recently. Um, she translated the Tao Te Ching. That's a very mysterious book um, that has been kind of, intriguing me recently so it was funny to uh to as you say go back in full circle and know that place for the first time as T.S. Eliot said wonderful the american filmmaker john waters famously advised if they don't have books don't go to bed with them are there any other similar book related advice you can share mm. well I, I doubt mine would be as, as pithy uh, you know there's a lot of advice that goes around in in the world's a collection, particularly in relation to investments and all these things. And I always get rather sad when, when, when that sort of advice gets bandied about because the thing that really matters that's going to make a difference in your life is that you buy what you love. And, uh, and, and, and you know, so when you look at your book collection, it's a representation of, of, of your passions and what you care about. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that's the thing that's really valuable about it. So, yeah, buy what you love. Buy what you love. All of that. And final question... Is it really taboo to judge a book by its cover? <laughs> well, I confess, um, you know, embarrassingly, that, that, that's about 70% of what we do uh, in, the, <laughs> in the rare book world. Start with a um, cover. Yeah, start, well, it's the condition of the, of the cover is usually one of the movers of the value, so certainly. Um, but, uh, you know, I think... So you, it's acceptable. As, <laughs> it's, accept, it's acceptable. But there's also, you know, the content is important as well. But... I suppose you also will know in the fashion world, um, sometimes, you know, the outsides of things will tell you something about the insides. So That's very true. On that note, it was wonderful talking with you, Sammy. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in. And please join us on Dior Common Thread on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.